Welcome to Brain Event. We are delighted to be joined by Connor Kianpur, and we're going to be talking about dissident members of marginalized groups. Connor, would you like to start with a thought experiment? So imagine that you have a friend, and we can just call this friend Todd, because in the paper that I wrote about these issues, that's what I call him. So Todd might be a sexually conservative gay person, or he might be a Black opponent of race-based affirmative action policies, or perhaps a pro-life woman, if Todd was a woman's name. And suppose that Todd were to broadcast his views about the issues that I just described to members of the public. And suppose that after doing so, other members of Todd's group so if he's a sexually conservative gay, it would be other gay people, an opponent of race-based affirmative action, other Black people, and a pro-life woman, other women. Let's suppose that after sharing his views, that other members of his group start isolating him, throwing emotionally charged epithets such as Uncle Tom or self-hating faggot. So the two questions that I'm interested in with respect to a case like that are first, does Todd do something wrong as a member of his group by expressing the views that he has? So this is a different question from whether Todd does something wrong generally, right? So like if you were to say that all people have an obligation to not express pro-life views, then Todd would be doing something wrong, but not in the sense that I'm interested in. I'm interested in, is he doing something wrong as a member of the gay community, Black community, community of women? And the second question that I'm interested in is whether the people that criticize, ostracize, and throw emotionally charged epithets at Todd are justified in doing so morally speaking. And just for the purposes of giving us language to use during this discussion, it might be helpful to refer to individuals like Todd as defectors and individuals that are unlike Todd in the sense that they belong to the same social group that Todd does, but they toe the ideological line, so to speak, of members of their groups. We can call them conformists. So, are conformists justified in responding to Todd as he does? And does Todd do something wrong, specifically as a member of his group, by expressing the views that he holds? So I take it that the traditional view, because traditions really are rooted in groups, I take it that the traditional view is that the conformists are doing something right by shutting Todd up, and Todd is doing something wrong by speaking out against the norms of the group, especially as a member of that group. But I take it you have a different view. I do, yes. So a lot of people, they will say exactly what you said, that the people who are responding to Todd as they do are doing something, if not praiseworthy, at least permissible, right? And then Todd is doing something wrong by refusing to tow the ideological line. But it seems to me that the best sorts of arguments that could be given to defend that claim are actually not that great. 
And that if we look at what role defection serves in terms of generating goods for society, as well as goods for individuals who engage in defection, that we'll see that we actually don't have many strong reasons to think that we're justified in responding to individuals like Todd the way that people in the case that I described do. So what are some of the chief arguments in favor of the conservative position? I have in mind a discussion that I had with a friend over the weekend who we were talking about AI ethics and there were certain activities we were discussing and she was saying, well, in, taken individually, I don't think there's a problem with them, but in the context of society as a whole and where it leads to the degeneration of society, in other words, qua member of society, this person is doing something wrong by, for example, engaging with sex with robots. There's a problem with that because it's going to lead to a degeneration of the values of society. So it's that distinction we were talking about at the beginning where you've got, on the one hand, the person doing something full stop, and on the other hand, doing something as a member of the group. And she was saying, well, maybe he's not doing something wrong full stop, but there's something wrong as a member of society because and by allowing that, we're allowing society to degenerate. So I imagine in the gay case, there'll be something similar is you can be conservative sexually as a gay man, you can be conservative about, about the sexual attitudes, but what you're doing is you're harming the notion of sexual liberty generally for the future of gay men. Great. So the argument that you just laid out, I think is a version of an argument that I talk about in a paper where I discuss these issues. So I will lay that out in a second and offer some responses. But before, I do want to note that the sorts of arguments that I make are made against the background assumption that some version of liberalism is true. So liberalism as like a political philosophy is just generally the idea that the state is entrusted to protect certain rights of individuals, among them being rights of free conscience, and also that individuals have these rights that act as a backstop against what the state can do to them, right? So, and on top of that, self-determination for individuals and autonomy in a liberal state are extremely important. So if it's the case that the reason that Todd is doing something wrong is only because there is some sort of value that he fails to promote within the context of a community that people are just telling him he's a member of without him actually endorsing his own group membership, I don't think that we could make a very strong argument like within the liberal tradition for why Todd is doing something wrong. You might wonder, like, why isn't it the case that I think about, like, the communitarian arguments and try to give responses to that, mostly because Western liberal democracies are not communitarian societies. And this phenomenon of sanctioning defectors is uh, particularly pronounced in Western liberal democracies. So I'm not going to entertain, like, the idea that The gay community, for example, could have some sorts of values that it is like supposed to promote objectively speaking, and that individual gay people for failing to promote those values are doing something wrong. So the justifications have to be a little bit different than that. So to build the argument that I think that you were making, I call this the role model argument. So some people will say that 
members of marginalized groups who hold the sorts of heterodox positions that I'm interested in, they, in virtue of their public iconoclasm and the fact that they hold the views that they do, are accorded higher sociopolitical status with respect to affecting change in the culture. So a pro-life woman, because such an individual is like a cultural oddity, some might say, has a lot of spotlights on her. People are interested in what she's going to say, especially people on the right, in America at least. So it seems like by having the views that they have and expressing them, they're accorded a higher status that could potentially affect the lives of other people in their community. And so if it turns out to be the case that a sexually conservative gay person expresses how, oh, all of these gay men have traded in their virtue for sexual liberation, and people on the right in a society like America's hear that, they probably will use that information as a way to justify homophobia that otherwise would not have been justified against particular gay people. And so the thought would be, because defectors are accorded this higher status and this ability to influence the culture, that they should withhold or suppress certain views that could be weaponized by bad actors for nefarious purposes. Now, I think that there are a couple of problems with this line of argument. So the first problem, I think, is like a problem with respect to egalitarianism. So liberals are going to typically think that individuals in liberal society should be regarded as moral equals. What that means for different liberals means different things. But one thing that I do think most liberals agree on with respect to what it is to be treated as a moral equal in society is that if there are any rights or claims that you are denied, there has to be a very good explanation for why you are denied those rights or claims and why other people in your society have those rights and claims. And particularly when you're trying to say that members of a minority group or a marginalized group have less of a right to do something, your explanation for why should be very good. And it seems that if we are to say that defectors do something wrong by engaging in defection, that we are essentially saying that they have less of a right to express certain views that are of importance to them as members of the groups that they belong to than anybody else in their group, as well as anybody else in liberal society. And so if you're a liberal and you care about egalitarianism, that very fact should strike you as worrisome. I've got a couple of thoughts. The one is it seems that if you sign up to a voluntary organization like a club, and there are a bunch of rules about what members of that club are allowed to say or do, and you defect, we can say quite comfortably, you've done something wrong. You volunteered to be part of the association and you broke the rules. Now, the kinds of groups that you're talking about don't seem that way. It's not clear that anybody agrees to be bound by a set of rules. It's also unclear who's making the rules and what the bounds of that club are. So, for example, we can imagine that there's a group which is gay men, but we can imagine that the group is 
often referred to as LGBTI. And there might be some gay men who say, I'm not part of that group. I don't want to be clustered in with people who are trans or intersex or lesbian, whatever other views those people have run contrary to the views that I have. And so when I express, let's say, views that are skeptical towards transitioning children, I'm doing it as a member of the gay male group, and I'm not defecting at all. Whereas the LGBTI group would say, of course you're defecting. You're a member of our legion, and you've done something that amounts to heresy, and how dare you? And we have the right to discipline you. So I wonder how you deal with those sort of boundary issues about who gets to set the norms of the group and what the bounds of the group are. I actually understand defection in a very minimalistic way. So if an individual is perceived as a member of a particular social group and they express something that is perceived to be defection relative to that social group, meaning that they express a view that is regarded by other members of the perceived group or like other perceived members of the perceived group as being important to them as members of the group and also regarded as substantively wrong or dangerous or something to that effect, that it should qualify as defection. I don't take any sort of, I don't, I'm not committed to any view of like what groups are, what the boundaries between groups are. And I do think that actually maybe the fact that these boundary issues exist in the first place offers an argument against people who are critical of defection, because if we can't even get clear about what the phenomenon is, then we can't say that it really exists and that there's anything wrong with it. But just for the sake of getting the conversation rolling, I just am committed to this very minimalistic view of what defection is. So just perceived members of perceived marginalized groups expressing views that are regarded by other perceived members of the perceived groups as important and dangerous. So I wonder whether you can get out of the problem that easily. So I have this in mind. So suppose I'm perceived to be part of the LGBTQI group and I make comments that are perceived to be transphobic and so I'm perceived to be a defector. Right. And then there's people within the LGBTQI group, or at least the perceived group, who perceive themselves as members and are perceived by other members of the group as a member of the group, who then criticize me for doing so. I take it that your position is that they've usually done something wrong in doing so, that they've done something impermissible in criticizing me and ostracizing me. If that's the case, then what I'm curious about is you're agnostic on whether the group actually exists. Would someone who's not part of the perceived group, who just is someone outside, who criticizes me for the mere utterance of these views, would they be doing something wrong? And if the status of their criticism is different from the status of the criticism of people within the group or perceived members of the group, then it seems like you are saying there's a category that matters here. The fact is they're members of the group. Otherwise, you can't get away from this problem. So, because right up front, you distinguish between actions qua member of the group and actions not qua member of the group. In other words, just actions as an agent. And in order to cash that out, I'm not sure that 
qua perceived member of the group is going to work. To clarify something first, I'm not committed necessarily to the view that any time an individual who's a conformist like castigates a defector for defecting, I'm not committed to the view that every single instance of that is impermissible. And I'm not, I don't think I'm even committed to the view that even like most instances of that would be impermissible. The sort of argument that I make in that regard is that we have a lot of moral reasons to not respond to defectors the way that conformists tend to. And those moral reasons include reasons against sanctioning defectors because the sanctions are bad for the defectors, as well as defection itself is a good thing. And to sanction people for doing it is to deprive other members of society of the goods that could redound to their benefit. So I'm not committed to any strong version of that. But to your point about whether I would regard like a conformist in the group, like making fun of or ostracizing a defector as being morally different from somebody outside of the group criticizing the defector. And so morally speaking, I don't think there's a difference. So Brando Simeo Starkey and Tommy Shelby talk about how there is this history of white people listening to Black people who express views that are congenial to the platform of the white majority and not listening to Black people who do not toe that line. And one of the things that I pointed out in my paper when I was discussing those cases is that there are white liberal elites who speak about Black conservatives like Thomas Sowell and Shelby Steele in ways that I find equally objectionable. And I think that maybe the reason that a lot of people that are sympathetic to my arguments might think that there might be a difference between a member of the group and a group outsider bring a defector is probably an aesthetic thing. It's the fact that you'd think, based on the defector and another group member having gone through certain similar experiences, that there would be a certain kind of consideration that the member of the group would extend the defector that a group outsider wouldn't. And I think that in terms of like etiquette, that might make sense. But I don't think morally speaking, there's much of a difference between people from within the group or outside of the group castigating members of the group. But one thing that I do want to say is that even if the groups don't necessarily exist, if I'm not committed to social groups existing, it still seems to be a socially contingent matter of fact that many members of these perceived social groups benefit from associations with other members of their social groups. And so to the extent that sanctioning defectors has the effect of depriving defectors of all of these goods that may or may not be necessary to helping the defector overcome the oppression that they face as a perceived member of a marginalized group, that provides us with a reason against sanctioning those defectors. Do you think there could be different speech obligations if you're talking about something controversial for the group, if you're speaking only to members of the group versus to outsiders? So for example, let's say you're an Orthodox Jew 
and you have a meeting with other Orthodox Jews and you want to talk about some of the obligations that are placed on Orthodox Jews, some of which are quite strange. So there's various obligations in sexual ethics or in whether you're allowed to turn on a light switch or there's lots of stuff that starts to look kind of absurd. And you might want to critique it. And you know that you can do so in a manner that doesn't place any of your brethren at risk because everyone inside the conversation is an insider. If you express the views to a broader audience, you could be opening up members of the group to ridicule and possibly attack. So if you sort of said, well, look at all these silly Jewish laws that are there, the audience who doesn't have the understanding of, of why they're there or what the cultural milieu is will view you as a dissenter to punish the others. And because of that, your speech obligations might be different. So you might think, for example, that inside of private discussions, groups should encourage dissent, that it's very useful because you could reform your traditions, you could learn new things, but that once they breach the walls and express the identical view to others, especially those that pose a potential threat to them, that then they are fully justified in punishing that dissenter. Yeah, that's a wonderful and interesting question. So David Schraub considers this suggestion that there might be a distinction to be made between expressing heterodox contentious views within a group setting and to a broader general audience. But I think that his analysis of why that sort of distinction isn't really a good one is pretty compelling. So he talks about how there is a publication that's specifically for Zionist Jews to talk about issues that are important to Zionist Jews. And so Traub talks about how it's really difficult to classify that, even though intuitively speaking, we think, well, anything going on in that newspaper is a discussion that's happening within the Zionist Jewish community. Well, anybody who isn't a Zionist Jew also has access to that same publication. And so anything that the Zionist Jews say to one another, thinking that only other Zionist Jews are listening, is actually the kind of thing that anybody in the general public could tune into. So I do think that there might be a distinction that could be made, but that distinction would like apply to like a very, very narrow range of cases where you would basically say, whenever you are in person in a group setting with other people who are in your group, who you know are not going to exploit what you say about other group members, then you may defect. But that just seems like a very liberty restricting or constraining position from a liberal perspective and should be regarded as suspect on that basis. So I want to push you on this liberal perspective. Suppose I am part of a group that's quite a conservative traditional group with perhaps rights, right-leaning traditions and values, and someone acts, the black sheep in the group starts spouting ideas that are contrary to my group's general position, and I, send, I censure them. I tell them to keep it down. On your view, well, if I were to say, the reason you should keep it down is that you're going to reduce in the long term the prevalence of the values that we hold dear in this group. You'd say, well, that's not really what liberal democracies stand for. That's not really what classical liberalism stands for. And we live in a liberal society, and those are 
those are the issues that should be carrying the day. Those are the, those are the principles that should be carrying the day. But I say to you, but hold on, that liberal principle, that's a political principle. It's not a moral principle. It might even be a legal principle, but it's not a moral principle. What I want to know is why am I doing something wrong or not necessarily just prima facie acceptable and permissible in, in criticizing this member of the group from a moral perspective? So I might say to you, okay, I'll grant that what I'm doing doesn't have political authority or legitimacy. But why am I doing something morally wrong? I don't want you to appeal to liberalism when you answer that question. Yeah. So I think the sorts of arguments I'm going to make in response to your question are going to be particularly persuasive to liberals, but I don't think that they're like liberal arguments. So we should ask some questions about what kinds of goods are produced by the act of defection when people engage in it. And we should also ask what sorts of like penalties or disadvantages do individuals who are sanctioned for defection suffer for doing so? So one of the bads of sanctioning defectors is that it's a potential site of epistemic injustice. So Miranda Fricker, she defines epistemic injustice as failing to respect another individual's capacities as a knower or somebody who can come to appreciate and articulate certain facts about the world that they have come to understand based on their experiences. And so two kinds of epistemic injustice, I think, are relevant to the stuff that we're discussing here. The first being testimonial quieting, which is the sort of thing that happens when an individual is not heard by the individuals that they are expressing something to. So, for example, the example that comes up in the epistemic injustice literature a lot is To Kill a Mockingbird and how a Black man was thought to not be credible in his testimony that he did not rape a white woman simply because he's Black. So he was a victim of epistemic injustice in a case like that. Then another form of epistemic injustice that seems to be relevant here is testimonial smothering which happens when an individual anticipates that their audience is not going to take what they're going to say seriously. So they truncate their own testimony in advance of that. So it seems to me that if we uphold these norms that allow for people to sanction defectors with impunity, basically, we make it so much easier for people to look at defectors and to just not take them seriously whenever they say anything at all. Which, for somebody who's already a member of a marginalized group, that should be worrisome for a lot of people. So that's one reason to think that sanctioning defectors is wrong. Another reason to think that it might be wrong is that it amounts to a form of cultural imperialism. So there might be some members of marginalized groups, so like the sexually conservative gays and lesbians in the LGBT community, who their particular conception of the good life is one that doesn't involve necessarily engaging in the sorts of activities that other members of their community might be engaging in. And if they want to pursue that particular conception of the good life, they should be allowed to without having values imposed on them. Now you might say, 
But the thing that you asked was that shouldn't we be allowed to try to preserve values that are important for us? And to that, I say, yes, you should be able to try, I think. But there are limits to that, particularly in liberal society. So the cultural imperialism point might be more palatable to liberals than it is to any other group. But another problem is that social isolation is something that would befall members of marginalized groups who are sanctioned for defection. And to the extent that we think it's already lamentable that they suffer certain harms as members of oppressed group, that we should think that there's also something lamentable about the fact that they would be deprived of any sort of social connection with people who could potentially be there for them. And then finally, so... Going back to like the role model argument that I was talking about and how defectors might be thought to be under an involuntary role model obligation to suppress their views. So people would say that they might be under an involuntary role model obligation to suppress their views precisely because there are people in the dominant culture who would tokenize them, right? And so it seems to me that if you have a problem with tokenization, you should have a problem with sanctioning defectors. So why is that? When there's a culture that jumps at the throats of defectors for stepping out of line with respect to the group, what you're doing is you're creating an incentive for the defector to distance themselves from their marginalized compatriots and to basically run into the arms of exploitative bad actors who want to use the defector and their testimony for nefarious political ends. So like the very problem that a lot of people point out with tokenization, I think, could be resolved if we changed our norms around defection. So those are at least some reasons to think that sanctioning defectors is bad. Some of those reasons are going to be more appealing and attractive to liberals, but I don't think all of them necessarily are. So I wonder about the content of the views expressed by the dissenter. So you can imagine, let's say that you've got a, a social group that adheres to egalitarian and liberal values, and the dissenter disagrees with them virulently. You could imagine, for example, there's a film called The Believer about a Jew who becomes an anti-Semite. And so one of his neo-Nazi compatriots says, the Holocaust is a lie. And he says, why would you hold a view like that? The Holocaust is the greatest thing that Hitler ever achieved. It really expresses strong anti-Semitic views. And you might think, well, there's good reason to punish someone who defects to that extent based on the content of what they say. So I wonder if you think that when we're trying to assess the speech acts of the dissenter, do we use our ordinary views about whether it's good speech or bad speech based on some kind of framework of which views are tolerable, which views are reasonable? Should we give extra weight to the dissenter because it's a brave act, it's hard to speak out against the group? Or should we weigh against them because they're breaking some kind of group solidarity? Above all, I think that I'm primarily interested in defending a conditional claim. That conditional claim being if a random member of liberal society is permitted to articulate a particular view, then it should be permissible for a random member of any marginalized group 
to articulate that same view. But I think in the cases like the one that you're talking about, we don't even really need to make any sort of reference to the individual's membership in a marginalized group to hold on to the judgment that whatever sort of speech they're engaging in is morally repugnant. I mean, I would personally think that it would be repugnant for somebody who wasn't Jewish to say that exact same thing. So I would say like in a case like that, we could hold on to the negative judgment that we want to hold about those cases without taking the extra step and saying, oh, but this defector is especially doing something wrong because they're Jewish or something like that. Yes, I'm not so sure. It seems like Sometimes we think that someone gets licensed to say things because they're a member of the group. So you can imagine the stand-up comic who's Jewish, who makes anti-Semitic jokes, and we say, it's because they're a Jew that they're allowed to say stuff like that. If someone wasn't a Jew and they said this stuff, then we'd think it was repugnant. So you might think that the membership of the group shifts the scales one way or the other. I suppose what you want to do is say that your group membership matters for nothing. In other words, we just assess the Speech Act and whether you're a member or a non-member really shouldn't matter. As an example, the Jew who utters anti-Semitic statements, as you say, if anyone were to utter them, they're horrendous. But isn't it worse that the Jew utters them? So it seems to me that when we say that a member of a marginalized group has license to speak about a particular issue, so we say that only gay people can make AIDS jokes that involve gay people, right? We might say something like that. I think that we're using their group membership or their perceived group membership as a proxy for some other characteristic that seems to be the characteristic that matters. Namely, that the individual who's making the gay AIDS joke is not doing so maliciously or with the intent to degrade or deride gay people generally. However, I do think that it's like quite hasty to say that an individual's perceived group membership serves as a proxy for this other characteristic with like a sufficiently high level of reliability because it's just not true that members of marginalized groups are monolithic in the attitudes that they hold toward issues that affect them. There are plenty of gay people who I know who would think that a gay AIDS joke is funny, and many people who are gay that would think that such a joke was extremely repugnant. And so I think this seems to suggest that whatever it is that people are trying to say is present in members of marginalized groups because they're members of the groups that they're members of, it's not present in all of those members. And it might also very well be the case that there are some non-members who possess the relevant characteristic that would entitle them to be able to say something about the group in question, even though they're not a group member. But the problem that I have is with making the assumption 
that individual who is Jewish simply in virtue of being Jewish has to have certain attitudes toward other Jewish people. Like it doesn't seem like that has to follow at all. And in fact, I think there probably are a lot of people in different marginalized groups who feel particularly estranged from other group members and don't bear the relevant sorts of attitudes that would make it such that if they were to defect and we found it objectionable, we could say, aha, it's especially bad that you defected in this particular way because you had these attitudes about your group members before and the fact that you're acting in ways that stand in tension with your possessing those attitudes is objectionable or criticizable. Since we can't make that assumption, I don't think that we have any sort of grounds to be able to make the jump that you're trying to make. I'm curious what work is being done in your account by the marginalized group. So do these principles apply equally in non-marginalized groups? I have in mind an example from one of my favorite TV series. So it's called For All Mankind, and it's an alternative history of what would have happened if Russia had won the space race. And it then catalogs what would happen over the following decades up until the present day. And spoiler alert for anyone who is watching For All Mankind, there is a defector, there is a traitor from the United States who gives secrets to the Russians. I suppose it's not really much of a spoiler. The spoiler would be what happens to this defector. But the point is, the defector gives away secrets to the Russians. And the defector, when it is found out, is seen as having done something absolutely horrendous. Because this defector operates a key spot within the American state, specifically the head of NASA. So. The question, is that kind of defection paralleled in a non-marginalized group? We're assuming the American, the group of Americans is not a marginalized group, but it seems like the attitudes are the same, right? They've given up something very important. Here's a parallel example is Snowden giving up state secrets. Now, this is somewhat different from the kind of phenomenon you're talking about, because the phenomenon you're talking about is uttering beliefs that are contrary to the common beliefs of your group or your perceived group. Here, what you're doing is you're committing actions that are perceived as wrong by the members of your group because you should be acting loyally to the group and these actions are disloyal. Do you think that the same account applies or do you think that we can say that, well, on the face of it, these people have done something wrong. At least there's a reason to think they've done something wrong as members of the group because they've been disloyal. And if you think that, couldn't that be applied in the marginalized group case as well, that they're being disloyal and in being disloyal, they've done something wrong? Yeah, great. So I'll say a couple of things. The first being that I hope that people take up this sort of defection analysis that I'm doing with respect to marginalized groups and applies that analysis to the sorts of cases that you're talking about. I think that by focusing on what makes defection wrong, if anything, that that might also, for example, enrich the conversations that we might have about the ethics of treason in political philosophy. So, I do have hope that the sorts of things that I'm talking about are not just applicable to marginalized groups, 
But I do think that there are reasons to think that my arguments work particularly well in the case of marginalized groups, precisely because members of marginalized groups are distinctively vulnerable in ways that make it such that if we are to burden them more, the justification for burdening them has to be extremely high. And so I think that probably when it comes to marginalized groups, out of all of the different groups that we could conduct this sort of defection analysis on, we would have the strongest arguments for the most permissive defection norms in the context of marginalized groups. Now, that being said, I do think that when it comes to certain non-marginalized groups, I'm of two minds with respect to what our attitudes about defection should be in such groups. The characteristic about defection in marginalized groups that you both have pointed out seems to make the case against sanctioning defectors particularly palatable is the fact that members of marginalized groups or members of those groups merely incidentally, right? Whereas members of religious groups, they there is a sense in which their group membership is incidental if they were born into a church, but then there's also a sense in which at a certain point they actually endorse their group membership. But then you have to ask questions about whether you should think that their endorsement of their group membership is legitimate given the coercive social pressures that led to them endorsing their group membership. So I think there are cases like that where it's not quite clear whether or not a particular individual assents to membership in a group. And on that basis, it's harder for us to tell what our attitude should be with respect to defection. But in the sorts of cases you're talking about when it comes to like nations, I think that same sort of thing also applies, right? Where members of a nation, there is a sense in which you're just born in the country that you're born in. But then there does seem to come a point where you do endorse your citizenship. And that might make a difference for how we regard defection. So I think that the reason I focus on marginalized groups is because it is quite frankly the easiest. But I do hope that the analysis would be useful for these other cases that you're talking about as well. So do you think there's distinctions within a group regarding your status? So you can have fledgling members of a group who let's say have just joined or just realized they're members of the group and stalwart members of the group who've been in it for a long time. So I'll give you the following case. Imagine you've got the baby dyke who says, I've just realized that I'm gay, but I've got all these mixed feelings. I sometimes fantasize about having sex with men and I feel some level of shame about the fact that I'm attracted to women. And you might think expressing those sorts of contrarian views are par for the course with someone who's a fledgling member. Then you can imagine, let's say, someone who's been a member of the group and an icon of the group for a really long time. Let's say someone like Ellen DeGeneres. And Ellen DeGeneres says, you know what, I've thought about it and I'm just completely and utterly disgusted by lesbian women. I cannot believe that I ever considered myself a member and I just want heaps and heaps of big cock in my mouth. Like we might think that the traitorness from Ellen Generous and the fact that she's a stalled member and sort of seen as a guiding role model light, that she's done something wrong in a way that the baby dyke hasn't. 
Yeah, I really love the example. It's phenomenal. Well, I do think that there is maybe potentially something to the thought that your obligations as a member of a group change as your membership in a particular group is more entrenched over time or something like that. And I think that maybe there would be something to that line of thought in those cases of defection that involve defecting from groups that you specifically sign onto, right? But I do think that like to assume that there are norms that are so pervasive that everybody in the LGBT community would get the memo about how they should act at different stages of their membership in the community, that just seems wildly implausible to me. Like, it seems just as likely that there would be somebody like Ellen DeGeneres, who swears off of women, as well as somebody who's exactly like her, except that she chooses to continue being an active member of the LGBT community. Like, I don't think that there's any sort of narrative story we could tell about the trajectory that LGBT lives should take. And if that's not the case, and we don't have any basis for saying that the nature of their obligations as a group member change over time. But you do think that there are potentially obligations that you could have as a group member. So you're saying that those obligations could be more deeply entrenched for higher status members of the group, although we shouldn't assume that there's a stereotypical set of beliefs that group members should have. Do you agree that, let's say, the group has supported you in certain ways? So the group has fought for certain values and supported you and you fought alongside them. And then you defect and your defection just so happens to undermine those values and really hurts the feelings of the other members of the group by doing so. It seems like that is similar to the reasons you give for why they shouldn't ostracize the member of the group. So they shouldn't ostracize the member of the group because it will involve them being isolated and that's a great harm to their social lives and to their, their mental status. It seems like that defecting group member is doing something similar, right? They are undermining the goals of their fellow group members. I mean, you're saying we can't assume the goals that those group members should have, but we can just stipulate what they are, that those group members have fought very hard for certain values and that defector has undermined them and betrayed that those values at the last moment. Haven't they done something wrong when they do that? Yeah, I mean, so if the claim is something like defectors by defecting render conformists comparably needy to the way that conformists render defectors when defectors are sanctioned, just Empirically speaking, I don't think that's true at all. So I do think that there's a difference in the sense that when a conformist sanctions a defector and isolates a defector, etc., they're isolating somebody who has absolutely no connections to other people in this group. And the connections that they have to people outside of their group are potentially exploitative insincere connections that tokenizers have. 
with the defector. So I do think that there's a difference in that respect. But the suggestion that all of these activists have burdened themselves to the benefit of defectors and defectors by defecting fail to burden themselves to the benefit of those activists. That I call a version of the gratitude argument in defense of the claim that defection is objectionable for members of marginalized groups as members of marginalized groups. And there are three problems that I identify with the gratitude argument. So the first problem is that uh, just because an individual has a duty of gratitude to discharge, it does not follow that the duty of gratitude has to be discharged in a narrowly tailored way. So that I have duties of gratitude to my parents does not entail that I must do everything that my parents tell me to do. Right. So similarly, that defectors might have duties of gratitude to activists who have conferred certain benefits on them does not entail that the way that this duty of gratitude ought to be discharged to the benefactor is by suppressing their views. So that's the first problem that I identify with the gratitude argument. The second problem that I identify with the gratitude argument is that in many cases, it seems like the relationship between defectors and certain activists is not the right kind of relationship for generating duties of gratitude, and that there are, in fact, other sorts of relationships that are better suited to generating duties of gratitude that we do not think, in fact, generate duties of gratitude. So to give you an example, a lot of people in the LGBT community make a very big deal about the Stonewall riots and the role that individuals who participated in the Stonewall riots played in conferring the sorts of benefits on members of the LGBT community in the United States. But if we're talking about, like, strictly speaking, how the members of the Stonewall riots conferred benefits on me, a gay person who exists right now, it seems like actually the Supreme Court justices who ruled that bans on same-sex marriage are unconstitutional, they are a more proximate cause of the goods that I experience as a gay person than any of the Stonewall rioters. And yet I don't think that I have any duties of gratitude to discharge to Justices Kennedy, Sotomayor, Kagan, etc. So why should I think that I have duties of gratitude to discharge to the Stonewall rioters? And then finally, the last problem that I identify with the gratitude argument is that it isn't clear why uh, somebody could not discharge their duty of gratitude to activists by engaging in defection. So Camille Paglia published a book, Sexual Personae, in 1990. And in that book, she offers a really compelling defense of like androgynous gender presentation. But her defense relies on and assumes the truth of very traditionalistic understandings of gender that members of the LGBT community are extremely resistant to. And so 
if the gratitude argument works for making it such that defectors should stifle their views to allow the activism of past activists to continue, then to the extent that members of the LGBT community have benefited from somebody like Camille Paglia publishing about androgynous gender presentation, they likewise have reason to stifle their views when their views come into conflict with hers. Thank <laughs> you.